Well, good morning. It is good to be back with y'all once again and back in our series here in 1 Corinthians titled Messy. And as Rod said a few minutes ago, we have gone to messy to even messier. So today is uh, PG-13 Gospel Hope, and I hope this will be helpful for you. Uh, we want to, as Rod said, we want to serve the parents in here. If you think this is kind of not a topic that you're prepared to talk with your children at this particular moment, you are free to allow them to be dismissed because we are going to get into some topics like cohabitation, um, uh, prostitution and talk about a pretty robust view of human sexuality. My hope is that this morning you will be deeply encouraged and help and some of you will be delivered from something that feels like a life-dominating sin and pattern of behavior. So can we just pause and ask for God's help in the next few moments together? Lord, we need you. And we just pause to confess our dependence upon you. Would you by your spirit draw near? Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you build us up by your spirit for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus? But would you hide me behind the cross? In Christ I pray, amen. From its inception, Christianity has in many ways been out of step with the cultural values around them. One way this is particularly evident is in Christianity's sexual ethic. For instance, in the epistle of Dionysus, which is dated around the second century AD when Christianity was a relatively new movement, the author wrote describing the early believers in this way. So this is from the second century describing Christians and their behavior. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor by the custom which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. Now listen to this very carefully. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. In other words, these early believers seem to share everything except their spouses. Their sexual ethic from the very beginning of Christianity caused them to stand out Apparently, it stood out blamely in the first century, and if we adopt the same approach, it will certainly stand out today. Let me illustrate with just a couple of statistics. 25% of Americans are sexually active before the age of 15. That number doubles to 50% by the age of 17. 65% of Americans believe that cohabitation, that is living together with a person that is not your spouse and having sexual relationships with them is a good idea. When you remove evangelical Christians from that number, that number spikes all the way up to 90%. So virtually everyone in our society that is not a self-proclaimed Christian believes that cohabitation is probably the best practice. 
When asked to describe traditional Christian sexual ethics, that is, man and a woman in the context of marriage, here are the words that non-believers use to describe that practice. 30% of, 36% of them say it's unrealistic. 27% of them say it's anti-gay. 25% said it's repressive. And 17% simply said it's just too strict. 20% of Americans will be involved in a consensual, non-monogamous relationship at some point in their lives. And finally, and maybe most startling of all, only about 3% of Americans wait until they are married to have sex. So what does all that mean? It means that if you have a biblical position, if you are trying to live out your sexuality in light of what the Bible says, then you will be frequently out of step with culture. Or to put it very plainly and maybe in a pithy way, propriety does not equal popularity. If you are trying to say, I'm going to behave sexually the way that the Bible says, you simply will not hold a popular point of view. So that caused me to ask this question. Maybe it's causing you to ask the same question. Why? I mean, why would God put this in the Bible and call us to live in a way that is so far out of step with cultural norms? Why does the Bible teach this view? And does God just want us to be weird or something? Is that his modus operandi? Is he calling us to live sexually in a way that is different from the world because he just wants us to be a bunch of peculiar people? That's the voice of the King James there. Fortunately for us, our passage today addresses questions like these in a very profound way. And as is so often the case, the Bible's answer to these questions is even richer than we might expect. That is, Paul doesn't just say, stop sleeping around or don't look at pornography. But he calls us to think about our bodies, our whole selves in relationship with the triune God. Before he deals with our sexuality at all, Paul is saying, here's the problem. You are not thinking of yourself as in a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you would get that right, if you would view yourself as an embodied soul in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it would transform the way you think about your sexuality. Which leads me to my, or I'm sorry, so what, what does all that mean? It simply means that in Paul's mind and in the Bible's mind, sexual issues are ultimately theological issues. Sexual issues are ultimately theological issues. That is, if you're having, um, if you're out of step with the Bible's teaching on sexuality, then it's because you're thinking about God and yourself in a way that is out of step with the Bible. You can't be a biblical theologian and then a sexual profligate. You, you, your practice must line up with, you, with what you preach. So all sexual problems are ultimately theological problems, which leads me to where we're going this morning. Simply this, we must have a biblical view of our bodies. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have a a biblical view of our bodies. Fortunately, our passage addresses this and tells us a great deal about the human body and human sexuality, 
We'll get to this in just a moment, but before I do, I, I, I need to make a couple of very, very important pastoral statements before we kind of dive into the meat of this message. First of all, it's this. I know, I realize that in a room of this size, and based on the statistics that I just shared, the vast majority of people in this room, for them, sexual sin and temptation has and probably continues to be an area of struggle, confusion, temptation, and maybe even failure, right? I mean, just, just the stats alone say that that has got to be the reality. What I want to say to you just as humbly and as simply as I can right now is that the point of this message is not to condemn you. That's not the point. The point of this message is actually to give you a, a beacon of hope and to say, what does the Bible teach about our bodies? What does the Bible teach about sex? And, and that means there's a way forward. The very fact that this passage exists in the Bible means that God cares about this flesh and bone on you. God cares about your body and he cares about how you use it. And the fact that he speaks in his word about it says this, there's grace for you this morning. No matter how bad your track record, no matter how current an issue this is for you, no matter how confused you might feel about it, there is grace in the word of God if we will look to him and look to what Jesus has done for us to liberate us from this worldly view of our bodies, this worldly view of sexuality, and an ability to embrace all that we have been created to be and express our sexuality in healthy godly, dare I say, satisfying, joy-bringing ways. The Bible has so much more to say, so much better wisdom on this issue than the world does. So let's go to the word of God and allow it to shape our perspective on our bodies and how we use them, particularly in the context of sex this morning. So can we do that today? Can we do that and ask God to really give us a view of sexuality that would honor and glorify him? And by the way, it can. Sex in and of itself is not dirty, though the world would make it seem that way. Sex in and of itself is a gift from God. And when used and leveraged correctly, it is meant to be enjoyed and it is given for the benefit of his creation. Sex, in, in a very real sense, ought to be an act of worship to the Lord. And, let me say the flip side, abstinence from sex, if that is the context in which you find yourself, is also meant to be an act of worship before the Lord. This is a good gift that the Lord has given us and we can leverage it in whatever way, whatever season of life we found ourselves in to give praise and honor and glory to God through it. So hear me on that and we'll say more about that in the end. So let's dive into that a little more particularly. How many of you took a anatomy class in college or high school or something, right? Okay, so what I wanna do right now is not dive into an anatomy and physiology here from a scientific standpoint, but what I want to do in the next few moments is examine a biblical anatomy. What is anatomy? It's the study of the body, right? And so the Bible gives us a biblical study of the Bible body, and I want to point out three things that this text points out about your body. You ready? Number one. Jalen's ready. Nobody else. He's engaged. Okay. <laughs> Number one. 
Your body is made for God. It's point number one. Your body is made for God. Interestingly, this passage begins with Paul actually quoting the common wisdom of the day. So this is not Paul's thoughts. This is what Paul's opponents are saying, basically. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 12. All things are lawful for me. Apparently, this phrase had become a slogan, which some of the Corinthian believers were using to justify their sexually active, inappropriate behavior. The Apostle Paul responds with this. Look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but all things aren't helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, Paul is saying, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Those who follow Christ do not have a now I do what I want mentality. Okay, right? That might be a, a popular rap song. But that is not how Christians ought to think. Now I do what I want. No, no, no. Something higher ought to motivate us as we go through our life than just, well, I do whatever I want. We should be governed by a principle that says, hey, I have to consider others. I have to consider the Lord. So then Paul pushes forward and he again goes after what the Corinthians are saying. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy both one and the other. I think the Corinthians are saying this as well. I don't think this is Paul's thoughts. I think this is their thoughts. It seems that some of the Corinthians were using this line of reasoning to validate their immorality. The thought process probably went something like this. Okay, so track with me. So if you're a Corinthian, this is how they were thinking. When my body craves food, I give it food. Nobody has a problem with that. So why shouldn't I give my body sex when it craves sex? It's just a bodily function after all, like eating or drinking. What's the big deal? And it doesn't matter anyway. Our bodies are only temporary after all. What's the big deal? When I want food, I go to get food. When I want sex, I should just go and get sex. And it doesn't matter in the long run because God's going to destroy those things after all. Paul could not disagree more. For the Corinthians were missing the fundamental purpose for which the body was created. Look at the text again, verse 13. Paul, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord will also raise us up by his power. Here's what I think this means. When God created humans, he created them as embodied souls. Okay? He created them as embodied souls. That is, there is an inseparable interconnectedness between the spiritual and physical aspects of our humanity. This is a little philosophical, but you need to track with me for a moment here. In this sense, it is correct to say your body is not simply a vessel for you. It is you. Okay? Your body is not just a vessel for you. It is you. When I pick this up, my body does not simply pick this up. I pick it up. When I talk, it's not just my body doing the talking. I am talking. I am a soul who is inseparably interconnected with this body that I now live in. This is substantiated by the fact that in the internal state, we'll not be like Casper the friendly ghost floating around. 
The, the proper state of humanity is in a body. Do you know that forever you will have a body? Forever you will have a body. Now it'll be transformed. It'll be a little bit different than the body that you currently have. But nevertheless, you will forever be an embodied soul. You say, where do you get that? Well, several passages in Scripture. Philippians 3, for instance. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. It doesn't say that God will take us out of our bodies. He says he will transform our bodies. So you will have a body in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. In other words, at the resurrection, when Christ sets everything right, you will have a body forever. There is something intrinsically wrong with a body being separated from a soul for a human being. A human being will forever be an embodied soul. Everybody with me on that? I know you're like, what does this matter? It matters. You'll see in just a moment. What this means is that although your body in eternity will be glorified, it will still be your body. You'll actually be recognized. Like Jalen will be Jalen in eternity. And we will recognize one another. We will look like what we look. I don't know. Maybe your nose will get smaller or your ears will get bigger or whatever it is that some imperfection. I don't know how it works. But the fact of the matter is, is that you will be recognizable as a person inhabiting your body. Now, the Corinthians were thinking about their bodies like disposable packages there, though. They were thinking, well, this is just a body, and so it really doesn't matter. Therefore, what they did in those packages really was unimportant. But our bodies were made for a much greater purpose than just be used at the cookout and then thrown away in the garbage. Paul says it this way in verse 13. Look there, verse 13. The body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Then he gets down in verse 20 and he says it again even more forcefully. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God then gave your, your, your body not simply to be used for hedonistic pursuits. But to leverage, to enjoy, and to exalt him. And in a sense, don't we know that? Like, isn't this self-evident? I mean, stop and think about your body for a minute. I mean, it's just too wonderful to be throwaway. I mean, think about the senses that you have. This, this right here, you see this? This is nothing spectacular, but do you know what it took for me to do this? Here's what it takes just for me to wave my hand like that. It requires the movement of nearly 30 bones, the coordination of 34 muscles which move my fingers, 17 in the palm, 18 in the forearm, all of those have to coordinate. We have a variety of senses that enable us to deeply interact with the world around us. We can solve problems, exercise creativity, move ourselves about, experience joy, communicate in meaningful ways, all of this with little conscious thought. The body is a marvel of engineering. It can't just be a throwaway package because of our bodies. We can be amazed by the beauty of creation. You can look up at the sky and be amazed by it because your eyes can perceive it. 
you could speak. Like, my mouth, my throat, my voice box is making little vibrations, which somehow, amazingly, you can hear in the little bones in your ear that vibrate, and they make it comprehensible to you. It's mind-boggling to think about that. Oh, we can hear things. We can worship the Lord through song. I mean, People created these instruments and then they figured out how to play them with their hands and move their arms and it makes sense in their minds. We can enjoy the taste and flavors of all that God has made. Amen? God, God could have made everything gruel. God could have made everything water. But he chose to give us a bazillion flavors and taste and put taste buds on this tongue of ours so that we could appreciate and experience it. We can actually touch the world. We can reach out and touch the world. I can feel, oh, that's kind of dirty. I can feel <laughs> the hardness of the wood, the, the softness of a hand. Can I shake your hand? Isn't that wonderful? That's amazing. That's another human being. I can stroke my little baby's head, put her cheek right up next to mine. I can feel because I'm an embodied soul. This can't just be a package. And if you were to put a McDonald's hamburger in like some sort of amazing package, you'd be like, what is wrong? Stupid people. But God put human beings. He package them in such a way that it's enmeshed in who they are. This is not just the house for me. This is me. Therefore, it matters what I do with it. This will be eternal. Yes, transformed. Yes, changed. But it will be eternal. Listen, brothers and sisters, the human body is perfectly suited to worship the Lord. God gave you all those senses so that you can worship him. You don't just worship God with your mind. You worship God with your whole self. You lift your hands in worship to him. You sing praises to him. You hear preaching about him. You open your eyes and look at a book that is written about him. Your senses, your body are required for you to fully worship the God who made it you. Intrinsically, that you, you know. I think we know at a fundamental level that this is just not a rapper. It is far too wonderful for that. Corinthians were thinking of their bodies primarily in terms of their sexuality. And here's what I would say. They were setting their sights way too low. It's just way too low. You're way more than your sexuality. There is way more to you than just your sexual organs. You are a body created by God, a human being with all these senses, with all these capabilities made to enjoy and worship the Lord, you were made for something greater than sex. And don't, that's an idol. And it's thinking too highly about sex and too lowly about God. You were made for more than sex. Number two, your body is united with Christ. Not only are our bodies created for the glory of God, when you trust in Jesus, your body is united with Jesus himself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies 
are members of Christ. Apparently, some of the Corinthians had bought into the fallacy that there was a physical part of their lives and a spiritual part of their lives. And the two were not really connected. What this practically meant was that it was no problem for the Corinthians to make a visit down to the cult prostitutes for which Corinth was famous and still feel good about their relationship with Christ. After all, that was just my body, not really my spiritual part of me. Once again, Paul takes this idea to task. Verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Paul is basically saying that when the Corinthians were going to the brothels, they were taking Jesus to the brothel too. Whether they liked it or not, their union with Christ made Christ go everywhere that they were. This morally repugnant image was meant to shock the Corinthians to their senses. Paul is basically saying, oh yeah? Oh yeah? When you go down and you go pay for a prostitute, you are joining Jesus to that prostitute. And in her guts, we're supposed to say, oh my word, that's terrible. So you might hear that though and think, well, that's just shameful. And it is. How could they do such a thing? And while it may be true that prostitution is not an area of temptation for you, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, the truth remains the same. If you have believed the gospel, then you you too are united with Christ. And friends, when you look at that pornographic image, Christ is with you. When you entertain that lustful fantasy, Christ is with you. When you flirt with that person inappropriately, even though you're married, Christ is right there flirting alongside you, as it were. We take Jesus with us everywhere if you've trusted in him. Do you not know, Paul says, that he who is united with Christ is members with Christ? He is with you on Sunday morning. Amen? Aren't we glad Jesus is with us right now? And he's with you Friday night. He is with you at church. Amen? And he's with you at your workplace. He is present with you when you read the Bible. Amen? And when you turn on the TV, Jesus is with his people. And that is meant to be, in one sense, a wonderful encouragement. But union with Christ is both a comfort when we suffer and a conviction when we sin. It's a two-edged sword. Man, when you experience heartbreak, aren't you thankful that Jesus is with you? I mean, wasn't Dante's story beautiful? Man, kind of his world was falling apart and what happened? Oh, there's Jesus stepping into the void. But brothers and sisters, when we run to the cesspool, when we go there, if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, then you are joined with him in that moment as well. And Paul says, should you take Jesus and join him to the porn site? Should you take Jesus and mesh him in that inappropriate relationship? Should you take Jesus and put before him that inappropriate romance novel? I don't know what your lust du jour is, 
But here's what I do know. If you have trusted in the work of Christ, then Jesus is with us at all times. And that's meant to discourage us. This proper view of the body is meant to discourage us from chasing after sin. Number three. So your body is made for God. Your body is united with Christ. Now we need to get to the third person of the Trinity, right? Your body is indwelt by the Spirit. Paul closes this section of scripture with a call to fight sexual sin. Look at verse number 18. Flee from sexual immorality. I mean, he just puts it out there very straightforward. Then he launches into a series of theologically loaded statements. So I need you to put your your biblical thinking caps on here for a moment and track with me as we kind of rapidly go through these last couple verses. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. I, I see three propositions there, three statements of fact in those last, that last little phrases there. And, and I want to unpack them in reverse order. You ready? So proposition number one is this, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 16 verse, or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. It simply says, for you were bought with a Christ. Those who trust in Jesus have been bought, have been purchased with a price. What is that price? Well, you don't have to look very far in the Bible to figure that out. For instance, over in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. So what's the answer there? You were bought with a price and that price was the very blood of Jesus. Believers have been purchased by Jesus's atoning work on their behalf. Proposition number two, you were bought with a price. What's next? Because you were bought with a price, you are not your own. Verse 19 again. So because God paid the purchase price through the death of his son, he now holds the deed to the property as it were. He is the new landlord in your life. And as such, he gets to determine who the tenant will be right? If you were bought with a price, the one who paid the price is now the owner who is God. And so he gets to determine who lives there on his property. Proposition number three, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So you could put the statements together like this. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit because... You are not your own. God bought you because you were bought with a price, namely the death of Jesus. You see how they fit together in logical sequence? The spirit indwells you because you are not your own. And because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Okay, you got that? Everybody got the logic that Paul is laying out there? So what is the implication then? Well, we don't have to guess at all. Verse 20. Glorify God in your body. Which in context is just Paul saying what he did in verse 18 again. Back up to verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. They're one and the same there. Paul is basically saying because God bought you with the death of Jesus. He owns you. And because he owns you, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Which means flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. 
Maybe this becomes clear with a, or, 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 or let me say this first. The Spirit's presence is evidence of God's ownership. If you're indwelt by the Spirit, it's evidence that God owns you. I mean, that, that's just what it is. Like in, one, in other passages, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. It's evidence that God owns you. So let me illustrate this principle with a little bit of a story. So currently, Kelvin, who we just saw up here this morning, one of our graduates and one of our interns at Gospel Hope, he is living at my house. And we're really grateful that Kelvin is living with us. He is more than welcome. But let's suppose one day I arrive home to find Kelvin painting the exterior of the house a lovely shade of lime green. To which I say, Kel, hey man, what are you doing there? And he said, well, I don't know. I thought I would paint my house. Now in a sense, in a sense, is it right and appropriate for Kelvin to say, this is my house? Is that right and appropriate? Yes, it is. Why? Because he lives there. I'm going to go to my house. He, 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 squatter's rights, as it were. Like, I live here. So, therefore, it's my house. Growing up, I, I didn't say, let's go to my parents' house. I just said, let's go to my house. Okay. But there is a slight problem with Kelvin's logic there, isn't it? It would be appropriate for him to say it's my house. However, ultimately, is it his house? Yes or no? Can, can all God's people get an agreement on this, right? right. <laughs> is it ultimately Kelvin's house? Okay, you still seem a little resigned. <laughs> is it ultimately Kelvin's house? No. Wow. Um, we're going to change our next sermon series here to property rights. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, because his name is not on the mortgage. Mine is. I signed the dotted line. I pay the bank. Therefore, as the owner of the house, I decide what color we paint it. And I much prefer seafoam to lime. I mean, he sh surely should have known that. You get the idea, right? Like, it matters who owns the deed, whose name is on it. And brothers and sisters, is this your body? Yes or no? Yes. Because you live there. But ultimately, if you have trusted in Jesus, whose name is ultimately on the deed? God's. Whose body is it? It's God's body. It's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So yes, it is yours. And it's appropriate for you to say, my body. I mean, we're not going to, Pastor Rod and I aren't going to run around like theological checking you. Is it really your body? No. <laughs> Would you like to shake my hand? Do you mean shake the Lord's hand? No, I was, <laughs> that's just dumb. It's appropriate to say that this is your body, but at the end of the day, if we're thinking biblically, if we're thinking theologically, then we have to say this is ultimately God's body. And if you have been purchased by Christ, then you belong to him. And brothers and sisters, he gets to make the rules then. What that means is if you're married, he calls you to monogamy. If you are married, he calls you to have sex with your spouse and with your spouse alone. That is his rules. And he has the right to do that because you belong to him. 
If you are single, if you are not yet married, he calls you to chastity. You are to withhold the gift of sex until marriage. It is something to be enjoyed in that context, but not outside of that context. Though this is radically countercultural, I gave you the stats. If you believe, if you think this way, it will be out of step with the way that people think in the world. It may seem difficult, but remember this. While the Spirit's presence is evidence of God's ownership, it's also evidence of something else. The Spirit's presence is a guarantee of God's empowerment. Not only does the fact that the Spirit lives in you tell you that you belong to God, but it also gives you the power, the strength that you need to live in obedience to what God calls you to do. The Spirit not only provides a deterrent from sin, but power over sin. Men, you don't have to look at porn. Ladies, you don't have to look at porn. You know why? God lives in you. That's not just like a discouragement. It's, it's, it's a message of power. Singles, you don't have to sleep around. Why? God lives in you. That's power for you. Husbands and wives, you can be faithful sexually to your husband and your wife alone. You don't have to be frigid. You don't have to be selfish. Why? The Spirit lives in you. And He gives you power to transform your sexuality into a sexuality that pleases and honors God. It's like you have a free agent signing in your life, right? The best free agent of all time, the Holy Spirit Himself. There's a story back from the early 1980s. The Philadelphia 76ers, a basketball team, kept on running into the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals and kept on losing. They couldn't get over the hump. The Lakers were their nemesis. So multiple years, here comes the Sixers, they play the Lakers, and down they go. And then the Sixers got a break. And they signed a man by the name of Moses Malone, the chairman of the boards. So they went into the next season, Moses Malone on the roster, the most sought-after free agent. They get to the finals again. They play the Lakers, same team with the addition of Moses Malone, go up against the Lakers, and it's not even close. It's a 4-0 sweep. The Sixers sweep over the Lakers like they weren't even there. Why? The addition of Moses. Listen, if you've trusted in Jesus, you may face the same temptations, but you have signed a new free agent, and it's the Holy Spirit and you can encounter those same temptations that you encountered before, but you have a new power, a new dynamic that is active in your life that can enable you to overcome those temptations no matter how difficult or no matter how loud the world seems to scream. We can be out of step with the world because we have the Holy Spirit and we can keep in step with him instead. What the Lord calls, he also enables when he calls us to sexual chastity, he enables us to pursue that chastity as well. Now, don't go out of here and say, Pastor Ryan said Moses Malone was the Holy Spirit. That's not what I mean, okay? <laughs> so where does this all leave us? 
Now that we've developed, Lord willing, a biblical anatomy, how does it work itself out in our lives? Let me close with just a a couple of practical applications. And if the worship team could come right now. First one is this. Enjoy the blessings of your body. Some of you might hear a sermon like this and think, well, I should just avoid physical pleasure altogether then. I don't think that's the Bible's point at all. God has created this wonderful world of sensation with so much to enjoy and to worship him for. There is nothing intrinsically evil about food or music or even sex. If it's brought under the lordship of Christ, these are good gifts from God. So eat a delicious meal. Go for a swim. Push yourself at the gym. Write a letter. Sing a song. Give someone a hug. Read a great book. And if you're married, enjoy the body of your spouse. These are not evil things, but good things from the Father to be enjoyed. Christianity is not a message of asceticism. Avoid the physical world. But it is a message to enjoy the physical world in such a way that it is an act of worship. Eat the meal as unto the Lord. Swim the swim as unto the Lord. Do one more rep as unto the Lord. Whatever it is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So it's possible, brothers and sisters, to live in this sensual world senses, right? And to worship God through our senses. We're going to ask you to do that in just a moment as we sing sensationally to the Lord in just a moment. Second thing, and probably even more pressing, um, maintain perspective about your body. There's a great temptation today to view people through the lens of their sexuality, isn't it? We look at people by sex appeal mainly. So if a person is physically attractive, then they're highly valuable. And if they're not attractive, then less so. This is simply ungodly. And it tends to hurt men and women in slightly different ways. So I want to speak to first our women and then our men very pointedly here in the next few moments. Women, ladies, I I cannot imagine the pressure a woman in our world feels in our sex-saturated society. And I just want you to hear me say that. Like, I can't imagine the pressure you feel. But let me forcefully say this based on the authority of God's word. Ladies, look at me, please. Look at me, please. You are more than your sex appeal. You are more than the shape of your body. You are more than that. Don't let culture and don't let us men sadly pigeonhole you and tempt you to believe that you are less than you are. You are an embodied soul created to glorify God. And no matter how sex-craved our society may be, I pray you will fight this temptation and see your body as God sees it. It is not, you are not a sex object. It's part of who you are. But it is not who you are fundamentally. 
you are first and foremost created in the image of God as a worshiper of him in relationship with the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So women, no matter what our society says, turn the stinking TV off if it tempts you. Turn it off. Close your eyes when you go through the magazine racks. Fight. Let's be a church filled with beautiful women, but not in the way the world qualifies beautiful women. Let's fight to see ourselves as the Lord sees it, ladies. And men, let's help our sisters. So men, let me turn my attention to you. Do not, do not give in to the temptation to objectify the opposite sex. Let us not evaluate women primarily on the basis of their physical appearance, but rather see their value as fellow image bearers of God. Here's just a practical way. Men, let's be quicker to point out a woman's character than her attractiveness. That was kind versus you look pretty. That was brave versus nice dress. Now, I'm not saying don't say those things. It's not inappropriate in the right context to point out, I like your haircut. You look nice today. But let's be known for praying for the grace of God in people's lives than rather just physical appearance in people's lives. Let's recognize that real masculinity is not found in unchecked sexual desire, conquest, getting the next girl, but is rather in an aspiration to lay down our lives in service and blessing of the women around us. Let's be men that don't step on women to get over them, but who lay down so they can step over us. We give them a hand up. Let's be truly masculine people, not macho people. You know the difference? There is a difference in our heart when we're saying this is a posture of service and help. So you might hear all this and it sounds incredibly daunting, and it is. You may feel like living in this reality seems impossible, but let me remind you of something as I just wrap up this morning. I'd like our prayer team to come right now and be ready on the sides. This passage, if you recall, was written to the church at Corinth. Corinth! It's, it's the first century equivalent of Las Vegas, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Corinth, unfortunately, didn't stay in Corinth, but went all over the place. This place was a mess. It was a, it was a first century, it was an ancient sin city. And Paul, writing into this context, this messy, messy context, just a couple verses earlier, writes these words filled with hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, there it is, idolaters, which was accompanied with going to the brothel, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Is there a lot of sexual sin here, yes or no? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds like bad news until you get to verse 11. And such were some of you. Were were your life may have a track record of brokenness 
There may be events in your life that are, have failure written all of them. You may have done stuff or stuff may have been done to you and you feel broken because of it. But here is what the Word of God says. Such were some of you. You don't have to be that way tomorrow. Because if you've trusted in the work of Jesus on your behalf, here is what He says to you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I don't know your past. I don't know your struggle. I don't know your confusion. I don't know your present story. But I know that there is hope in the work of Jesus Christ for all our sexual brokenness. So brothers and sisters, let us view these bodies in the way that God views them rather than the way the world does. And let us say, no matter what has happened to me before, there is hope for me going forward because Jesus died on the cross for people like me. And I'm going to pray. And the worship team's going to lead us in song. And here are some folks on the sides. They would just love to pray with you. I don't know what your struggle is. You don't have to be fully transparent over there. But if you would just like someone to pray for you, say, I need to grow. I need to change. I'm hurting. I'm struggling. They would love to spend some time praying with you. And I would be remiss if there's just stuff that is just too tender, too sensitive to talk about. Pastor Rod and I would be more than happy to talk to you. If you'd rather talk to a lady, please come see one of our lives. See Miss Glenda or Ed over here. They would be happy to talk with you about these issues. Let's find help in the gospel of Jesus Christ for all our sexual brokenness today, all right? Let's run to Jesus and let him cleanse us and heal us and make us new. Can we pray about that together? Lord, we are so prone to view our bodies in the wrong way. Our culture screams at us that we are just sex objects. And you can't be satisfied apart from fulfilling your desires in however you want. But that is not us, Lord. We have been bought. We are not our own. Because of the work of Jesus, we are not our own. And the Spirit lives in us. So we have power over sin and temptation today. Pray for all those in this room. Maybe there's some that are really struggling with this area or need some encouragement or just need to keep fighting the fight. I pray you would help us to turn away from our sexual sin and seek sexual satisfaction in the way that Christ commands us. Help us to see our bodies as who we are made in the image of our great God. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please seek out the prayer team if you would like, and let's worship the Lord together. Let's stand together.